0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning. So glad that you're joining us here, whether at Ajax, Port Perry, Bowmanville, online somewhere around the world. Welcome to week two as we're diving into the ancient words of scripture, into the Ten Commandments. The word of the year in uh, the Oxford Dictionary in 2016 was the word or the phrase, post-truth. We hear this all over the news, we hear this in social media posts all the time. That's her truth, we should let him share his truth. Now, if you just let the linguistics have authority, you know that that in itself is contradiction. There's truth and then 15 years ago in ancient times, we had another phrase for this, it was called your opinion not your truth. See, truth is not based on experience alone. It is not based on perception alone. There is truth, there is absolute truth. There can be 14 opinions about something, but there is what happened and what did not happen. And we need this more than we have ever needed this before. David Brooks, famed New York uh, columnist in his brand new book, The The Second Mountain, has said it best. Listen closely to his words. We're drowning in freedom, we need direction. We're looking inside ourselves to discover inner passion, when we should be looking for causes to serve others. We can no longer tell right from wrong. We should be drawing on the wisdom of the ages. We need to now live in a second mountain, a life committed to others. He says we need guidance for life. Thinking on universities, he says, students are taught to engage in critical thinking, to doubt, to distance, to take everything apart, but they are given almost now no instruction how to attach things back together, how to admire things, how to swear loyalty to things, how to copy or to serve. And this is the great phrase, the university system, like the rest of now North American society, is now information rich, ready, and meaning poor. This is why we must go back to the faith of our mothers and our fathers, back to God's ancient word, back to the well-worn paths of life, back to the Ten Commandments. See, if you're a Christian, and I know not of us—all none of us—all uh, of us here are Christians. We who are Christians, though. We regularly pray the, the, the Lord's Prayer, your, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, and we, when we are doing that, we are asking, we are invoking for the reign and rule of God in and on earth, in our lives, in our family lives, in our sexual life, in our finances, in our worldviews, in our theology, in our workplaces. And of course, the Ten Commandments is actually what we're praying to invoke. Now before we get to the traditional two first commands, Let me take a moment to do a review from last week so we're all on the same place, whether you're a seeker, a skeptic, a brand new believer, or you've walked with Jesus for years. Exodus 20 is not the only place where the Ten Commandments are found. There is eight other full or partial summaries of the Ten Commandments. You can find them in Deuteronomy 5, Psalm 15, Isaiah 33, Micah 6, Isaiah 56, Amos 5, Habakkuk 2 and Leviticus 19. The point, the reason why I bring this up is because they are embedded across the whole Old Testament, and they set the foundation for worship, life, and worldview. So what are they, and what do they do, and what do they not do, and why does it matter? First and foremost, the Ten Commandments reflect God himself. God did not just wake up one day and go, I don't think I like murder. Why? Well, I don't know. No, no. The Ten Commandments are not laws or ideas separated from God. They stem from the divine DNA. They are divine DNA. See, when you see the Ten Commandments, you are literally seeing the character of God himself. God says no to murder because he's a life-giving God. He hates stealing because he's a generous gift-giving God. He rejects adultery because he's a covenant-keeping God. He says no to idols and other gods because he is embodied truth, and it breaks his heart and actually makes him angry that humans or the demonic try to replace him and embondage people that he loves. It was J. A. a. Packer, the great Anglican thinker that simply said, God's law expresses his character. It reflects his own behavior, It alerts us to what God will love in us and will hate to see in us. It's a recipe for holiness. It's consecrated conformity to God, which is his true image in humanity. Now, the second and third purpose of the Ten Commandments act like a double-edged sword, like two sides of one coin, or the beginning and the end of a book. See, when you see all of God in his perfection, if you literally just open up the Ten Commandments and read them for face value and then look at yourself in the mirror you will know how quickly our sin is so close and real and consuming. See, the commands are given not just to reflect who God is, the commands are given also to show us our need for God. See, you'll never need a savior, you'll never be driven to the mercy of God if you just think everything's okay. The Ten Commandments Commandments show us how much sin we are in, how broken we are, how far we are, and it actually is a damning statement. When you read the Ten Commandments, it is a declaration that there is not one person out of the 7.5 billion people on earth that is okay with God, whether they're profoundly spiritual, religious, or secular. See, the secularist versus the spiritualist versus the religious person all think that they're right and against each other, but in God's eyes, all of them are the same. Paul wrote these words in Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says it says to those that are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced. Now here's the phrase we do not like and the whole world will be held accountable to God. We're in a post-truth culture where no one's held accountable because everything's at, no 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 no. God says Every human being ever born living at this moment or will live is accountable personally to him. And then these words that violate religion at its core. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. Be okay with God in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So when you open the Ten Commandments, you see who God is, how holy He is, how other He is. When you read the Ten Commandments, you see how lost we are, how broken we are, how we break His law and heart all the time. We become conscious of sin. And at that moment, when you realize, when we realize we cannot be saved by obeying the law because it's impossible to do it perfectly, and we see our sin, then there is a decision to be made. Either you can run towards God and see if He might be merciful You can invent a God that you feel like he's okay, so you can get along with it. You can say God does not exist or pretend like he does not exist and run from him. But if you choose the first path, if you run right at God himself and all of his otherness, you will find something profound about God. Oh yes, God is holy, other, God is holy without sin, but God also at his DNA is love. Anyone want to say amen to that? He's love. And so when you encounter him, you will actually know that though we have violated his own DNA, he is driven not just by holiness and love, and he will forgive. And once you experience the forgiveness of God... Then the Ten Commandments take on their last form for you. After you meet God through Jesus as Savior and Lord, after you receive the Holy Spirit who gives you the power to actually follow God, then the Ten Commandments become the way we live for God who already loved us first, and they give us freedom. As Packer said, these ten directives, these ten life-giving laws embody the Creator's intention for human life are here presented as a means of maintaining a redeemed relationship already given to us by grace. In other words, the Ten Commandments aren't given to unbelievers, though it would help society. The Ten Commandments are given to those that already know God personally. This is grace, this is mercy, this is actually what forms the context. Remember, we talked about this last week. God gave the Ten Commandments to those he already knew. Exodus 21 and God said all these words I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery because I'm Yahweh because I'm your savior because you could do nothing and I showed up in Egypt and I sent Moses and did all the plagues and I got you out because I love you because I swore to Abraham that I would love you because I have loved you first now I give you these ten commandments and why does he give them? So so we keep the relationship intact? No, no. So it's the key to get in? No. It keeps the marriage healthy. So we're already made right. We're already justified by God's own work. He's already redeemed us from slavery. As another said, God is redeemer and rewarder. The God who redeemed the Jews from the Egyptian slavery is the same God that has redeemed Christians from the bondage to sin and Satan at the cost of Calvary. So now the Ten Commandments become most important to us post-relationship. In other words, we are called after we've encountered the Father through the Son by the Spirit to look like the God who has loved us first. It's an old word we don't use in church anymore, but we need to bring it back. It's called sanctification, holiness, right living. And what does a sanctified life look like? It looks like the Ten Commandments. And of course, Jesus summarized this in Matthew 22:37. 37. He said, love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Oh, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, Jesus is saying the most important thing is to love God and love others. Well, what is the Ten Commandments? It's loving God and loving others. So after God assures assures them of his fatherliness, his love, his commitment to them, then he declares the first command. Not before, after. And here's what he says. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the greatest call to be countercultural. This is the greatest call to be different. This is the greatest moment of freedom and offense. To be separated from all the other nations and to be a holy nation that reflects God Himself. Now, we all need to understand this for the series because actually this command is the foundation for the other nine. The other nine are a call to run from actions, places, worldviews, or deities that will try to replace God's heart and life for you. You're gonna take notes for Connect Group. Do this, have no other gods before me. Here's how it reads in the original language. You shall have no other gods beside me or you shall have no other gods sitting in front of my face. I want you to imagine... That you encounter God in all of his nests, everything. You're a Christian and you've loved God, and suddenly God shows up palpably, physically. uh, Jesus returns, here it is. And you go, hold on a second, I just need to put this God in your face, Jesus. See, the image here is God is present in his fullness. The people have redeemed, have a redeemed experience. They're in a love relationship. And what he's saying is, do not place a God beside me as an equal and do not put anything in my face that violates my holiness. Now, that phrase, no other God, no other in Hebrew, is a very specific phrase that we miss in English. It's a marriage phrase. And it was used when husbands did a very terrible thing. When husbands got bored of their wives and wanted an upgrade, because the old model was not as good as it used to be in their opinion, and they wanted a younger version of a car, what they would do is not divorce the wife, they would take a second wife and place the first wife here, and then the husband would marry a second wife and put, ready, her either in front of her or beside her as equals and would violate the covenantal relationship and commitment he had made to the first wife. In other words, here's how this reads. It's shocking, it's helpful, it's offensive, it's beautiful. Heaven says, people of God, do not have an affair on me. The living, loving God who's brought you out of slavery. There is no better spouse than me. Now this little verse has massive impact It takes aim at atheism because there is a God who self self disclosed himself. It's saying that no other gods and idolatry are dangerous, which of course within C4 as a church, but also within our own personal lives and our families and our culture take four forms. And before you fold your hands and plug your ears and say it's not my problem, it's all of our problem. John Calvin, the great reformed theologian from Geneva once, once said that the human heart is a factory producing idols all the time. Now, as I'm gonna do this, I've done this a few times before, please don't zone out, like this is is about life and freedom for us. So here's the four ways idolatry appears in our culture and in our families. The first one is formal idolatry. It's the worship of idols or gods through formal religion and also another thing called folk religion or spirituality. In the Judeo-Christian worldview when a person even a good or sincere person, I want you to hear that, because we live in a culture that says, if I am sincere, I am correct. No. If I don't hurt anyone, it's not wrong. Wrong. In the Judeo-Christian worldview, when a good, sincere person worships any other God except the one who is found by Jesus through the Holy Spirit, it is idolatry every single time. When a Hindu today, right now, at this moment, somewhere around the earth, offers incense to Ganesh or Vishnu or Shiva or Brahman or offers food, idolatry. When Muslims, our brothers and sisters, in the sense of they are friends of ours, or maybe they're your relatives, reject the Lord Jesus Christ as God, idolatry. When a Buddhist teaches karma or reincarnation or lives like nirvana, can be earned by self-instruction or meditation, idolatry. Jehovah Witnesses meeting right at this moment in things that look just like church and they sing or they speak about the Lord Jesus Christ and yet they say that Jesus was created and used to be the Archangel Michael, idolatry. When a Mormon knocks on your door and sounds very similar to you but then you find out that God the Father is just one God of millions of gods that's populating the universe, idolatry. When your friend is involved in Wiccan witchcraft and is actually using witchcraft not for evil or good and tries using the power of nature to bless others, though their sincerity is there, it is still idolatry because the source of that power does not come from the true living God. It is idolatry, it has nothing to do with sincerity. Spirituality is even more dangerous. Many, many people, even Christians, break God's heart knowingly or not through this folk religion. When you actually are involved in spiritual actions or involved with spiritual forces other than God that elevate you to God's place and or give you power, you're not allowed to have. Beneath all our technology and our science and our globalization and our information overload and medicine, you will find that many people, including many of you I'm speaking to today, are involved in one or more practices like tarot cards, psychic readings, crystals, new age, witchcraft, horoscopes, outright Satanism, Ouija boards, reincarnation readings, ghosts, haunted houses, levitation, palm reading, seance and tea leaves, water witching, Reiki energy. You're like, oh, I do that. Well, where does that energy come from? Because it's not from the Holy Spirit. Numerology, you go to Pier 1 to buy idols that look cute in your garden, idolatry, magic eight balls astrology, some of you are involved in secret societies that call you to do oaths and though you don't believe them, they don't take you to the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you swearing to? Idolatry. Now the second or third actually form of idolatry that is a little less religious and feels a little bit more Western is what's when, when thoughts, words and deeds or sex, money and power replace the God of the universe. Now by the way, sex, money and power are not wrong. Actually, they're all gifts from God himself. Sex, money, and power, though, can be used to replace God. I think it was either Henry Nowen or Richard Foster who said, sex, shekels, and the stomach are the unholy trinity that worships the God of self through pleasure, possessions, and position. Oh, John, I know that I'm not allowed to have sex before marriage, but I love her, and that's such old thinking, and I've gotta experiment to see if I'm compatible, so I gotta live with idolatry. Your sexual life with your boyfriend or girlfriend has become an idol, and your relationship has become an idol because you think you know better than God. Oh, God made me this way. God can't tell me to reserve some things or say no to things. Fine. Then actually your rights or your lifestyle have become a God. John, I know God told me to surrender that or give more money or time, uh, but, you know, I'm so afraid. Well, then fear is your God. Oh no, John, you don't understand. I I don't have time to celebrate big or or connect small or or walk with Jesus. I mean, you haven't seen my schedule. I mean, I've got four kids and I've got ballet and I've got dance and sports. I, I understand. I live in that world too, but it sounds like your schedule has become God, not God. God is what you love. God is what you seek. God is what you worship. God is what you serve. God is what you allow to control you. As one said, the real issue then between false gods and the true living God is this. Who do we actually trust in at the end of the day? To find God alone trustworthy leads to worshiping him and loving him and serving him. To find God inadequate and untrustworthy is to turn to other gods which we think they can do the thing God will not do for us. The question for our day is this, in whom or what do we now fully trust in for our salvation, our security, and our daily needs? If the answer is anything or anyone other than the living God found through Jesus, then you have walked in and kissed another God. In many instances, we trust more in our money than we do in God. But the deep reality is this. It's not evil to have money. Actually, poverty is a a blight on the human race. We should do everything we can to lift people out of poverty. But when you get money, money is not your savior. God is your savior. There are so many things that plague us. And we fight for these things. But what we do not understand is that idols never bring life or freedom. They only bring bondage and death. Whether it's formal religion and idolatry, or it's spirituality, or it's sex, money, and power, it's the last one that's the most subtle. It's the last one which is most dangerous to we who are Christians. It's a wrong view of God that is not informed by the scriptures. Many of us sitting here today have a wrong view of God which turns him into something we are okay with, something we want, or he is something even more insidious, or something that we hate. It was A.W. Tozer, his famed book, The Knowledge of the Holy, when he simply said these words. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of all of humanity will probably show that no person or no people group has ever risen above its own religion, and a person or a community's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than their idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entains high or low thoughts on God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church, us, is always God himself. And the most important fact about any person is not what we may say or do, but what we believe in our hearts God to be like. Let me put it a different way from a pastoral counselor. What do you think when you first hear the word God? Many people will say God is love. Others will say God is holy. Others will say, even as Christians, I think God hates me or doesn't like me. Your answer to the question depends on your view of God. Your view of God determines how you walk in life. If you view God to be non-existent, you'll live like he does not exist. If you believe God does exist, but he doesn't really care about what goes on in your life, then you'll live your life accordingly. But if you truly lean in, if you truly believe with all your heart that he loves you, with a holy, redemptive, never-ending love, then you will worship him with all that you are. One last thing before we leave verse three. Let me read it to you again. You shall have no other gods before me. Is this saying that there is only one God and all other gods don't exist? And they're all invented? No, absolutely not. What's being said to the Jewish people in this moment, there are many gods, but there is only one worth worshiping because there's only one God who is uncreated. John, are you just saying, did, I mean, do I need to tweet out the heretic post right now? Did you just say there are many other gods? Yes, I did, but they're not God. They're called the gods of the nations. Later, we know them as Satan and the demonic. They are real. They act like gods. They have real power, but they're not the true living God. Idols themselves are nothing, wood, stone, hay, uh, pictures, ideas, worldviews, but there is a real present power behind them. We learned this when we went through First Corinthians. First Corinthians 10:19. Do I mean then... That a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or an idol is anything? No. Oh, but sacrifices of pagans are offered to, what, what's the word? Oh, demons. Not to God. And this is written to Christians, by the way. I don't want any Christian to be a participant with demons, which implies as a Christian you can be. In other words, what we're learning when we read the Ten Commandments and see it through the lens of the New Testament, we saw this last week too, When God overcame the gods of Egypt by the plagues, he was declaring that he was stronger than all these other gods, and he was basically saying, as one person wrote, look at what I did to the gods of Egypt. I beat them at their own game. I beat them on their own turf. Turf, I'm alone worthy of worship. See, he writes, the first command gets to the heart of what it means to be God's people, not only in terms of what the Israelites have left, but also in terms of where they're going. See, what is the promised land? The promised land is Cana. What was Cana? Cana was a nation full of idol worshipers and God was basically saying, I've just taken you out of idolatry and the land I am taking you to is filled with idols and if you don't get this right now that idolatry violates everything, you will go to the promised land and you will go back to Egypt in your heart and don't even know how you got there again. So God moves in greater detail and he says, look, command two, you're to not make yourself an idol from in the form of anything in heaven above, earth beneath, or the waters below. This is talking about religious idols specifically, not all images. He says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now everyone lean in. For I am the Lord, your God. Oh, and I'm a what? Jealous God. Jealous God. It was in 2008, the very first time I had preached through the Ten Commandments in our community and I remember back then I was watching a web class by Oprah when people could call in by Skype in that ancient technology and asked Oprah, one Christian said to Oprah, Oprah I'm, conf- I- I'm just, I'm confused because she was promoting a brand new book called A New Earth, which was a famous New Age book. And she says, how do you reconcile what you're promoting, which is overtly New Age in your Christian belief? And so oh, this is what Oprah said. This is actually the script. I've reconciled it because I'm able to open my mind about the absolute indescribable hugeness of that which we call God. Notice the language already. It's this next phrase. I, Oprah, took God out of the box. Wow. Wow. Because I grew up in a Baptist church, and and you know there were rules and belief systems and indoctrination, and I happened to be sitting in a church in my late 20s, and this great minister was preaching about how great God was, omniscient and omnipresent, and God was in everything, and then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God, obviously King James Version, and and I was, you know, caught up in the rapture of the moment until he said jealous. And something struck me, she said. I was thinking God is all, and God is omnipresent, God God is jealous, question mark? God is jealous of me and something about that did not feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. Side note, that's not Christian at all, that he's in all things. And so that's when the search for me began to go beyond doctrine and find something more. Now I watched in the next 24, 48 hours and a lot of Christians bashed her online. Some were trying to reach out to her but my heart broke. Oprah is an a brilliant leader. She's done so much good for the world. But in that moment, my heart broke because she missed the great love and power and work of God because she made the fatal, fatal mistake of connecting this to the modern word for jealous and in the end bought into idolatry and rejected the God of scriptures. God's not suspicious of Oprah or wrongfully envious of her success or distrustful. This idea of jealousy comes from one who is married and loves his people and is jealous for them. In other words, as one wrote, jealousy is that emotion by which God is stirred up and provoked against whatever hinders the enjoyment of which he loves and desires. The greatest insult that can be done against God's love for us is to slight it or embrace a lesser, more base love. Such idolatry is labeled spiritual adultery in other parts of scripture because it breaks the covenant that exists already between God and his people. It's adultery. Let me make this clear. God is not some out of control husband who won't let his wife go out and live a life and is always stalking her online. That's not the jealous. Our God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He is perfect, he is holy, he is loving. I want him stalking me because I can't lead myself life, but he can. He's jealous. And Oprah missed the point, and in the end, because she missed the point, she created a God she is comfortable with. You shall not bow down or worship them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. Punishing children for the sins of their fathers to the third or fourth generation of those who hate me, and showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now, this is Hebraic uh, poetry. Don't, like, work this out. Well, if I commit adultery, we've got four generations, and they're out. No, 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 stop. What this is saying is simply this. What we do with God or idols affects the generations after us. If we do not walk with the living God, our children will not, like this, this is what this is saying, and this is saying generationally there is impact. It can ripple down, good or bad. Make sure that if you are a follower of God, whether you have your own children or not, you are fighting against idolatry because you want the people that you influence and the children you have influence over you to encounter the true living God. Genocide, war, slavery, exploitation, imperialism, pollution, sexual falling are all examples of how sins are passed down and ripple down through generations and we're still dealing with them today yet there is a promise here that if you obey the living God and love the Lord God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself then there is power to break all of that and change the trajectory of families forever so for you who are seeking you who are skeptical you who are not Christians here or you're Christian in name only this is the challenge to you in this moment to see God who he really is and to see lesser gods for who they are and to see you for who you really are. For 2000 years, we as Christians have confessed that if you truly want to know who God is, all you know, must do is look at Jesus. Colossians 115, Jesus is the invisible, at the image of the invisible God, he's firstborn over all of creation. Again, as one wrote in Jesus, as in all of God's self-disclosure throughout the Bible, there is a combination of pity and purity. There is passion and there is power. There is a slowness to anger and there is also a coming severity of judgment that should humble every single one of us to our roots and move us to cry out, Lord have mercy. To you who have not embraced God yet through Jesus, here's the challenge as another wrote. The decision before us is not between atheism or God. It's an issue, it's not an issue of God or no God. That's not even the choice of the table. The question is, which God will you worship? The true living God that came to us in Jesus or a substitute God? See, even atheists believe in God because they run their world like they are God. (laughs) It's so important that we understand this. We will always look beyond ourselves to something That something helps us make choices in life. It gives us a set of values or priorities that serve as reference point. It becomes the determining factor. And so gradually, we may not even catch it, we begin to always look like the God we worship. Every God stamps the worshiper with their own trademark. Right now, whether you know it or not, the God that you worship or the gods you worship is leaving a mark on your own life. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, whatever then your heart clings to, whatever your heart relies on, oh, that properly is your God. We must let God be God, the true living God. That's why the Bible is so fiercely opposed to idolatry. The greatest sin described in the scripture is not breaking the commandments, it's idolatry. Idolatry, he writes, is misplaced allegiance, making a commitment, having a love and a priority, a God which displaces and dethr- dethrones the true living God. If you have never met God, let let me just say this, or you're part of another faith, or you're spiritual. Here's what God is offering today. See, I don't want you to misread this. I'm an intense personality, so I want to make sure you get this right. God is not like a dad who's pacing in the basement when their son or daughter makes a terrible mistake, and is like, stupid child, I wish you'd just get it. We're just going to throw it in the garbage. It's broken. It's done. And the kid is sitting here with the heads in, and they know, no, God says it's broken. He never says it's not broken, notice that. He always doesn't tell his truth, he tells the truth. It's broken. And then he sits, and he puts an arm around you, and says, and I can fix it, and I still love you. See, if you have not embraced the living God of heaven and earth, here is the invitation I'll give you at the end of this message, to say no to every other God Education, sex, money, power, self reliance, spirituality, or another form, and say, I want Jesus' work alone to be free. If you do not say yes to the true living God through Jesus, you'll spend your life bound down to yourself or other gods, and they will never meet your dip- deepest needs as a human. I want to give you two old African sayings that might help you. And they're just so simple and they're so helpful. One is a man cannot choose two roads at the same time. And here's the better one one cannot chase two pigeons at once. What road do you want? What pigeon will you follow? The God that we worship in this church and around the world with many other Christians. Is a God of love, a God who's holy, a God who tells the truth, a God who restores, a God who gives freedom, a God who gives rest for your soul, a God that has overcome death, a God who forgives sin, a God that is more beautiful and more holy and more loving than anything in any other religion, any other philosophy, or any other worldview. Why? Because he actually is God and the rest of them are not. And he invites you home. Now, lots of us sitting here are followers of Jesus and we love Jesus. And what does he say to us? Well, God comes among his people this day by his word, where two or three gather, Jesus is literally here, and he says to us his people that his desire always for us is to be free. Never forget, false gods promise that what, what God can give isn't true. Money cries out, I'll give you security and happiness. Misuse sex says, well, you'll finally feel loved or you'll finally be treated the way you are. And it's not right that you're lonely. And I know you've prayed about your loneliness and God isn't answering you on time. So you have the right to do what you want because it's your body and you're a other spiritual forces will cry out. Where's your God? You're sick. Your family's sick. He didn't show up when he was supposed to. You can't trust him anymore. Actually, you need to take control or you need to come to us and we'll give you other spiritual needs. Even our own hearts cry out, trust yourself, the power's in you. Don't worry about all those old God-given rules. You're okay, You're, you don't need to be holy. You've got this grace thing going on, so God's not gonna matter. You've got a credit card, just use it, lots. God, really? Here's one of the most important, helpful, freeing, and shocking verses for the church. It's found in Colossians 3.5. It says, put to, oh, what's that word? Can we just say that? Oh yeah, three of you said it. Let's try that again. Two Pentecostals and Dave helped me out. Thank you. Let's try that again. Put to what? Oh yeah, okay. Just kill it. What? Oh no, this is to Christians. Put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly desires. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and oh what? Greed, which is what? Idolatry. So here's the real question before us, and not in a condemning sense. Trust me, I'm not wagging any of my fingers at you. I've been looking at myself all week. I'm undone, so I'm just with you. What idols as a Christian are you burning incense to? Or let me bring it closer. What idol are you kissing what God do you place beside the Holy Spirit who's already in your life or in front of the Holy Spirit and say, oh, I love you, Holy Spirit, and I want revival, but just so you know, he gets to stay too. No, he doesn't. Who do we trust in for salvation, for security, for our daily needs? And see, here's the problem. We are so blind, even as Christians, that even a good 360 feedback's not gonna help us. And so at the end of this message, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go before the Lord among you and with you and I'm gonna ask the Father and the Son to send the Holy Spirit among us and we're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to tell us where idols are in our life. Because he is good, he's our comforter, he's our convictor, and he knows everything. He knows us better than ourselves. And so for you who are not Christians, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to be free and then I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to show up in great power across all our sights and beyond and ask the Holy Spirit to say, that is an idol. And why am I doing this? Why do we need to do this, why? Remember why we started this series? Because God has decided to do unique sovereign things in this church, not because we're better, because he's ordained it. And not only that, we spent all these weeks on spiritual gifts, which was amazing. We found out how much the Holy Spirit has been given to us, all the gifts, and then the Holy Spirit came to us and what did he say? And now you know how much power is in your hand. I want the holiness of this church to grow exponentially, why? Because I do not want my spirit to be grieved, why? Because I want the world to know that God is real and he can be found again. So, there's this moment where we're going to open our hands and say to the Lord of heaven and earth, anything that is an idol, I'm requesting you show it in my life now. And here's the last thing. Here's where I end before we pray. When is the last time in your devotions, your walk with Jesus, you said to the Lord, thank you that you're jealous for me. When's the last time you actually said to God, you're a jealous God and you weren't afraid as a Canadian to say that? God's jealous for you. What does that mean? That means that God is gonna defend his relationship with you. He elected you, he called you, he thought of you while Jesus was dying. He decided before the beginning of time you'd be his child and he is not gonna let this marriage die. You're not strong enough to kick him out and he will take no other adulterous partners. He is jealous for you and thank God he's jealous for us because we're not enough jealous for him. I was sitting in church last week in London with 8,000 other church leaders from 80 nations at Alpha. It was a whole dysfunctional family was there, it was great. And then I went to the service after, the small little Anglican church, and it was John Stott's old church actually, some of you might know that name. And it wasn't connected to that conference, it was just a, a service at lunchtime in the business dist- district of London. And they started singing the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord I feel it, right? Prone to wander. And then there's that great old phrase that says, bind my heart to you. And I was sitting there, it wasn't my style that I usually like in worship, a little bit more classical, but I was like sitting there going, oh, that's it. Thank you that you're so jealous for me because I am so prone to wander from you. So would you stand wherever you might be and let's, let's pray a few different things. Number one, this is for you who are unbelievers or seekers or skeptics or atheists or agnostics or you're part of another faith or involved in witchcraft or a new age, but you have not exclusively trusted in Jesus. Here's what you need to pray. God, you're God and I'm not. And I repent for my idolatry. Worshiping other gods or worshiping myself or trusting in me, I repent. I need Jesus to save me from my sin. I'm going to confess that Jesus lived, loved me, died, and rose physically from the dead to break the power of sin, death, and the demonic in me. And I turn from idols and I say yes to the true living God. Forgive, I can't earn this, so forgive me in my sin and help me to become your child right now in Jesus' name. For the rest of us, if you would open your hands, that would be great. Just a posture and just say uh, this. We're gonna pray this on behalf of us. Father and son, I can't command you to do anything. My request, our request as a community, send the Holy Spirit. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.